You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. We are today wrapping up a mini-series that we've had for the past few weeks on Imago Dei. That's a Latin term, and it means the image of God. And just a quick reminder of where we have been. We talked week one about what this image of God actually is and how it is stilling value and dignity and worth into all of humanity. Then week two, we moved a little bit further and talked about how Imago Dei affects marriage between husband and wife. The next week, we talked about male and female and gender expressions and gender identities Understanding that great topic of the day, as the Bible teaches about Imago Dei, and then last week we discussed race. Again, hot topics of discussion today. All of this, of course, is centered around this one passage in Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 is right, there it is. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Both male and female created in the image of God. And that means that because you and I are created in the image of God, we are defined. We have our value. We have our worth in something far greater and far more meaningful than anything in this world. I asked a friend of mine to uh, put this diagram together for me. I like this. He's really gifted in this. Uh, Consider the, uh, uh, this would be the right side of the diagram for you. Consider this side. Uh, my achievement, this is my value. It's, it's, it's built in the things that I can achieve, uh, whether it's in sports. So I'm good at sports or not good at sports. I have looks or I don't have looks. I can do a lot of things and lots of achievements accomplished, but I, uh, I have a great family, come from a great network of support, or I don't, not so much. I've got the brains, I've got the money. You see what this says? This is how the world defines value in the things that can be achieved. What we've been learning throughout the Imago Dei series is this is not how we are to find value in ourselves. We are to find value in the fact that we have been made in the image of God. We are to find value in the understanding that not only are we made in the image of God, we have also uh, been, the life of the Son of God has been paid in our exchange. And now we are a child of God. Our identity is not achieved, says Imago Dei. Our identity is endowed. We receive it right at the beginning. Here's the big idea for today's message. Imago Dei means that all human life is precious to God. All of it. Imago Dei means that when I understand that I am created in the image of God, I can know how valuable I truly am. But that includes all human life. All human life as precious to God. I'm going to pray in just a second, but I want to get you an understanding of where we're going today as we talk about this subject of the sanctity of life. Today we're going to tackle specifically God's perspective on understanding how Imago Dei affects how we view abortion. In a moment, I'm going to pray for our time together, but I want to say a few things in advance. First, a word for you parents. The content of this week's message is difficult. It is difficult for all of us to listen to, but it will not be graphic in detail. 
As a father of younger children who will be sitting in one of these services, I am comfortable with understanding that this is what my children will hear. But that does not excuse you parents from having helpful conversations with your children afterwards. Secondly, a word about what's ahead. This message has two points to it. Both are extremely important for this topic. I would ask that you would listen to both sides, not just the half that you want to listen to. Third, a word about approach. There's so much that can be said about this topic, as I'm sure you can understand so much, in fact, that we have actually organized an online event that you can take part in. Beginning this Saturday, we have a Sanctity of Life event. You can find all the information on our website. That will be more educational in its approach. Today is going to be more pastoral, I hope, as we look at God's word and as we seek God's direction and leading through this time. And thirdly, or fourthly, a word of thanks. Over the past few weeks, I've been blessed by the support of the body of Christ around me in preparation for this message today. I've had prayers, I've had counsel, I've had encouragement, I've spoken with doctors in our church, I've heard personal stories of pain, I've spoken with the Pregnancy Crisis Center director, and I've also spoken with an author and an international speaker, the one who will lead the Sanctity of Life event, and then, of course, I have spoken with my wife, Catherine, and I am very thankful for all of you, some of whom are even sitting here today. That being said, by way of introduction, let me pray and let's dive in together. Father, we recognize right away that this is a difficult, this is a painful in some cases, a personally painful discussion. But we want to hear from you, Lord. You have the truth that will lead us. We pray that, God, just as you would be speaking to us from your word and pointing us in the direction of truth here today, you would be doing that more as a father unless as a teacher. Yes, we need to learn. Yes, we need to hear. Yes, we need to understand. But more than anything, we need you to hold us, to carry hearts today, that we would hear truth with grace today, that we would hear truth with mercy today. In other words, that we would see Jesus today. I pray, God, that you would be leading hearts now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got a copy of God's Word, why don't you turn with me to Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is where we're going to be most of the day, though I'm going to move us one more time in the text. Let me define things while you're turning there. As it relates to abortion, let me put up a definition on our screen. This is page 28 of the Oxford English Dictionary defining abortion as the procuring of premature delivery so as to destroy offspring. That's the Oxford English Dictionary. In other words, in other words, abortion means to make a decision to end a pregnancy without a child. Now, there are several common ways that this is done. The first, the morning after pill. That is a chemical swallowed in the first trimester within the first 72 hours of pregnancy. It is three to four times stronger than birth control and is designed to expel a fertilized egg. There's the RU486 method. 
That's mufepristone, a chemical swallowed in the first trimester from four to nine weeks. It's a synthetic steroid that blocks the hormone of progesterone, which is necessary to sustain the life of the fetus or unborn child. And then thirdly, this is the most common method, the vacuum suction method or the DNC, where the womb is dilated and tools are connected to suctioning apparatus and a powerful vacuum removes and breaks up the fetus. These are three of the most common ways, but they are, by my count, five other ways involving chemicals and or instruments to end pregnancies at every stage from conception to delivery. Now, in Canada, since 1967, it's not only legal to have an abortion, there are actually no rules surrounding when that abortion can take place. It is the only nation within the G7 who has such a liberal understanding of abortion. And since statistics began in 1970, approximately 3.2 million unborn babies have been aborted in this country. Canada no longer requires anyone to keep track of any precise details, be it the age of the mother or the age of the child, but we can conservatively estimate about 100,000 a year, 274 a day, and 274 is currently about the seating capacity in this room right now. With those numbers, and I understand that some women can have this multiple times, we see one in four women can have an abortion in Canada within their lifetimes. In the United States, the numbers are higher. National Right to Life reports that from 1973, beginning with Roe v. Wade to 2008, in the United States alone, almost 58 million abortions have been performed. Conservative estimates put that number at one in three American women will have or have had an abortion at some point in their lives. Globally, around the world, the story is much the same. More than 42 million abortions occur each year. That's 115,000 abortions every single day. In other words, it takes only four days to get to the combined population equivalent of Burlington and Oakville in just four days, or 25 days to reach the population equivalents of Toronto. Less than two years to reach the total loss of civilian and military in World War II. If the Western nations have openly permitted abortions for nearly 15 years, these numbers, you can see, are staggering. If the numbers today were consistent throughout those 50 years, and in fact today, the good news is that abortions seem to be on the decline, but if we take today's number and back at 50, 50 years and get a conservative number, what we're looking at over those 50 years is somewhere in the area of 2.1 billion abortions. For some perspective, the earth has a population of 7.6. But there is a great debate. A great debate that rages on do these staggering numbers constitute human life or something less? When does human life begin? Let's hear what God has to say. Psalm 139, beginning in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, 
when as yet there was none of them. Point number one, the first half of this message. Imago Dei means that God loves children. Within the womb, life begins at conception, says God. And the science confirms the fact. Before even implantation, the sex of the new life can be determined. The new life composed of a hundred cells has been uniquely specified and distinct from the mother's DNA code. At 17 days, the new life has developed blood cells. At 18 days, occasional pulsations of a muscle occur. That's the heart beginning to beat. At 19 days, the eyes begin to develop. At 20 days, the foundation of the brain, spinal cord, and the entire nervous system has been laid. At 28 days, the backbone and 40 pairs of muscles are developed along the trunk of the new life. Arms and legs are forming. At 30 days, regular blood flow is evident within the vascular system, and the ears and the nasal, nasal system has begun to develop. The science tells us this, but God goes even further. For you, says David, formed me. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. This is no accident, says David. Look at the language of design. You, God, formed me. You formed. That's the word that carries with it the sense of creation with the hands. You knitted, again, intricately, intimately involved, woven together. God's hands are on me in the womb, carefully bringing me together. God is sovereign over the embryo. He's also sovereign over my frame. At six weeks, the baby is an inch long. At 42 days, the skeleton is complete and the reflexes are present. At 56 days, all the organs are functioning, stomach, liver, kidneys, brain, all systems intact. At 11 and 12 weeks, arms and legs begin to move while fingernails and toenails appear. At 13 weeks, hair appears on the baby's head. At 18 weeks, the baby is 12 inches long and the mom can feel her baby move. Vocal cords are working. The new life can cry. Says David, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Look at the language. God is building life. He's sovereign over my frame in the womb. He's also sovereign over the length, the length of my days. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Even before she takes her first breath. Before she sees the light of day, God knows her story. He knows what she's gonna look like. Like mom, like dad, a little bit of both. He knows what her favorite stuff he's gonna be. The bear, the dog, the elephant. He knows what's gonna scare her at night and what's gonna make her feel peaceful. He knows how school's going to go and what her major will be if she goes to university at all. He knows who her friends will be, maybe even who her first crush will be. He knows what her favorite drink at Starbucks is or maybe she's a second cup kind of gal. He knows whom she'll marry or if she'll stay single. He knows what will scare her as an adult. He knows what her mistakes will be. 
He knows what her victories are going to be. He knows what's going to make her laugh and what will make her cry. He knows what her days are going to look like as she nears the end of her life, and he knows what that last day also looks like. He knows, even before any of them were written, he knows every day, and he loves her. We can look elsewhere in scripture of John the Baptist leaping with joy in the womb or Jesus calling the little children to come to him. According to the Bible, what we see though, according to the Bible, here and elsewhere, that which is unborn in the womb of a mother is absolutely life. It's human life. And human life that is made in the image of God and is therefore precious, it is valuable and it is worthy of life. The Bible is indisputable in this. The unborn are distinct, living, and whole human beings. Yes, they will grow, and yes, they will mature, but they are whole human beings nonetheless. The unborn is human life. And imago Dei means that human life is precious to God. Now here I should add that this is ground that has been seeded in the argument. Pro-choice positions no longer argue against this fact of life in the womb. Virtually no professional bioethicist denies that life begins at conception. Faye Waddleson, Waddleton, she's a former president of Planned Parenthood, she said this, I think we've deluded ourselves into believing that people don't know that abortion is killing. Yes. She says, it kills a fetus. The science supports the Bible. What the Bible has always said, the science now recognizes. That is life. That is human life within the womb. But that's not the argument anymore. Sure, goes the other side. It's human life, but it's not a person. Personhood comes later. Personhood comes when you get a little bit bigger because right now it's too small. But since when has size ever had anything to do with importance and value? I'm taller than a lot of you in this room. Does that make me more valuable than you? Well, goes the argument, it's not developed, it's underdeveloped. Well, true, you were less developed as an embryo, but six months old. Are, are less developed than teenagers. And no offense, but teenagers are less developed than adults. Well, you say it's not conscious. Well, if consciousness is used as a criteria for personhood, then what about the man who's been knocked unconscious? Does he cease to become a person? What about our elderly who begin to struggle with dementia and Alzheimer's? Did they become less important, less valuable, less of a person? Well, you say, okay, it can't live on its own. It's entirely dependent upon its mother's care. Well, yes, it's dependent upon its mother's care, but since when does dependence mean that another human being can remove you? There are many people that are dependent upon other people for life. Do you see what's on the table here, church? What's being said is that ability, maturity, aptitudes, achievements, are what warrant a person. 
and so allow that person to have life. It's an extremely exclusive position, if you consider it. Within this series, we've given you a number of reading resources we commend to you. Uh, one of the ones for this particular topic I would commend you to read or look at is a book by Nancy Percy, who wrote this book, Love Thy Body. She said this in, an, in recording an interview she had. The pro-choice position is exclusive. It says that some people just don't measure up. They don't make the cut. They don't qualify for the rights of personhood. By contrast, I said, the pro-life position is inclusive. If you're a member of the human race you're in, you have the dignity and the status of a full member of the moral community. It most certainly is a person. But, goes the argument, but it's the woman's right to choose to control her own body. To that I would agree. But what God's word is teaching us right now is that in pregnancy, there are two different bodies, two different heartbeats, two different brainwave patterns, two different genetic codes, often two different blood types and two different sexes, and two different stories written by God upon a life. Well, the next objection comes. But what if my baby has a birth defect? Choosing an abortion for a deformity in the womb or a difficulty in the womb is, understand this, it's choosing quality of life over sanctity of life. It's making a judgment that some lives are just not worth living. It's saying that they cannot live happy and productive lives. Johnny Erickson Tata has written extensively on this. She's herself a quadriplegic. She says this, our society has a fundamental fear of disability and we are letting that fear drive everything from laws and policies to the quiet hints in the doctor's office that the unborn child is better off dead than disabled. She goes on, true, disability is hard, but it can also powerfully unite a family. It can refine a family's character and set of values. It can force one to see the joy in simple achievements and pleasures. A disability can foster faith, a deeper prayer life, and a respect for God and his word. Most of all, it can force us into the arms of the Lord of grace. And that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. Do you see what's happening here? If we can pull up this diagram once more, one more time. What's happening here is the world is saying achievement-based value. If, if you're not disabled, if you've got it all together, if I want you, well, what God is saying is value is actually endowed and all human life is valued. Last objection. But what if the conception was forced. What if there was violence? Here again, we're confined by God's word. In pregnancies that result from rape, how many humans are we forced to say are involved? Is there two? Or are there three? Should we punish the guilty rapist? Absolutely, yes. 
Yes. Should we punish the mother? No. No. Should we execute a child for the sin of his father? What we see is that aborting a child causes the woman to be victimized twice and destroys an opportunity to see God's sovereign plan for both an innocent mother and an innocent child. If we hold to the opinion of God, then we must believe that unborn are human life. Imago Dei, life and personhood all begin at conception. What about those numbers at the beginning? 42 million abortions a year globally. If that number is accurate, even just for one year, let alone the 50 since Roe v. Wade, this would constitute the single greatest cause of death the world has ever known. It is a silent genocide of staggering proportions, but it is not a general genocide. The greatest victims of abortion are girls. Some have labeled it a gender side. In fact, a documentary on the issue says that the three deadliest words in the world are, it's a girl. Rather than liberating women, it's killing women. It also targets minorities in the West, with abortion clinics like Planned Parenthood concentrated around urban centers. It's estimated in the United States alone, over 60% of African Americans and 60% of Latino Americans die because of abortion. Planned Parenthood itself is rooted in the work of Margaret Sanger, a firm believer in eugenics, the understanding that inferior races should be destroyed. Imago Dei, though, Imago Dei cries out that all human life is precious to God. All of it. So what do we do with this? Proverbs 24, on screen for us. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? William Wilberforce, he was a reformer of the British slave trade, stood up in Parliament one day and said these words, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never again say that you did not know. There is a responsibility, church. There is a responsibility to care for the unborn. You have eyes, you have eyes to see. Use the eyes that God has given you. You have a voice to speak. Use the voice that God has given you. Cry to the Lord. Lord, please end this. Cry to the Lord, please use me to end this. Speak to the men here for a second who's saying, oh, you know, this is just a woman's thing. That's one of the greatest lies that others want you to believe, that this is a woman-only thing. This is a human rights thing. There are babies that are being killed, millions of them, and you need to use your voice to protect them. That's what a man does. 
That's what a man does. He protects children. He protects his own children, his own family. He protects other children. That's what it means to be a man. But there's another person in the equation, isn't there? Because every pregnancy includes a mother and a child. Now historically, the church has recognized the human toll on the unborn, but what about the mother who made that decision? Or felt forced into that decision? What about her? Take a look with me back at Psalm 139. Psalm 139 speaks not just to the born and unborn, it speaks to them together. It applies to those who never made it out of the womb and those who went on to live lives. You saw my days, says David, verse 16. You saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. You saw them all, says David, for David and for all of us. But what if your days included you having an abortion? Turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Jesus was invited to many meals in his ministry and one or two that weren't friendly This one in Luke chapter seven is actually a trap, but if a grave and death can't trap Jesus, then this certainly is going to fail as well. You see, there's a woman in the town, verse 37 tells us that she's a known sinner, and you can let your mind figure out what kind of sin. It's not too hard to imagine. It's also not too hard to imagine that these Pharisees, important, wealthy people that they are, at a closed dinner party, and yes, they had doors back then, and yes, it would have been closed, wouldn't have maybe, just maybe, opened the door and even planted this woman into this setting as many commentators actually think is what's going on here. However it happens, she's making a scene. She begins to weep at his feet. She begins to wipe tears off with her hair. It's quite a scene. It's quite messy. It's quite undignified. Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a teacher, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. This is typical, isn't it? This is typical. The Pharisees' words just dripping with condemnation. Shame heaped upon this woman, second-class citizen who deserves what she gets. And now she's with Jesus, good Jesus, not so good anymore. But Jesus has something to say. He's not going to fall for this. Simon, he says, I have something to say to you. Verse 41. He tells him a story. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii. That would take a lifetime to pay back. And the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you've judged rightly. Who's going to love him more, the one who got his whole lifetime of debt paid off or the guy who owed him, you know, a month? The story speaks for itself now, verse 44. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears 
and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, turning now to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus, ignoring them, verse 50, said to the woman again, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. You don't need to be around these jokers anymore. What we're learning here is that in Jesus Christ, any sin can be forgiven. In Jesus Christ, any shame can be washed away. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. In Jesus Christ, there is hope. In Jesus Christ, there is a future. In Jesus Christ, there is a removal of shame. In Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in him. And then there is nothing that will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Why is this? Imago Dei means that all human life is precious to God. Just as Imago Dei means that Jesus loves children and their lives are sacred, so too Imago Dei means that Jesus loves women. He loves women. The reality is that abortion takes not only the life of a child, it also wounds a mother deeply. With wounds she often carries for the rest of her life, in disruption of relationships or anxieties, depression or distrust, in a fear or avoidance of the subject, a grief, a guilt, a, a hopelessness, a profound regret, of rejection and shame and feelings of unworthiness. Behind the story of every abortion is the story of a woman who has been hurt. In a medical science monitor study, 64% of post-abortive women in America, the United States, said that they felt pressured by others to have the abortion. There's many reasons why women feel pressure to make this decision. Fear of parents' reaction. Fear of rejection and ridicule. Fear of financial responsibility. Fear of the inability to care for a child. Or fear of a pregnancy that resulted from violence. Fear of, of being rushed to make a decision by parents or the baby's father or an abortion counselor. Feeling like it's wrong to bring an unwanted child into the world. Feeling like it's just another means of birth control. Feeling like it's just a mass of tissue so no big deal. Feeling no moral conviction because of a lack of the knowledge of God. There's many reasons. But behind every single story of abortion is the story of a woman who's been hurt. And if the numbers are truly that high in Canada, maybe that's your story as you sit here even today. What do you do with your hurt? What do you do with your pain, your grief, your feelings of shame, your feelings of unworthiness or regret? The answer for you is you go to Jesus right now. When you hear the words said to you, don't you know what kind of woman this is? And you realize it's your own voice. It's your own heart speaking this. You take your tears. 
You run to Jesus. You fall at his feet. And here's the great and awesome truth of the gospel. In repentance and faith in Jesus, you will find forgiveness. There is hope today for you. In Jesus, you say, I see today what I've done. I see maybe even for the first time how wrong I was. Maybe this has followed you for years. Admitting brings freedom. And when you cast your eyes on Jesus, he will not cast you out. He takes you by the hand. Calls you his daughter. He recognizes love for you. You recognize his forgiveness for you. You recognize that, you recognize that there's grace for you today in this. Jesus loves you. His daughter, my sister. Margaret Gibson, she runs a crisis pregnancy center in Texas. She said this, a lot of women that we know have been through the tragedy of abortion. Her burden is not too great. Her sin is not too great. Jesus knew fully that would be a part of her story and has still loved her. Imago Dei means that all human life is precious to God. Even you, mother. God knew. He knew the decision that you would make. He knew the pain that it would bring. And so Jesus came for you, a baby into his own mother's womb. He lived and he died upon a cross to pay the penalty of our sin and give us life. Listen, no sin is too great for the Lord to forgive. His mercy and his forgiveness is there for all of us today, and that is the answer for all of us. Jesus loves you as his daughter, and as we confess Christ as Lord, as we repent and turn, we find forgiveness in him, and we find that there is no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus, and then we find that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, and the old has gone, and the new has come, and we hear even the words of Jesus, that whoever hears his word and believes in him who has sent him has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. What about as a church? What about all of us? What are we to do with this? You have eyes. You have a heart. Use them. If it is true that 60% of women feel pressured to have an abortion, why can't this community be different? Why can't this be a community with open arms, why can't this be a community that does not heap judgment and condemnation and shame, that does not say, well, good luck with that, instead rushes alongside of a mother in crisis pregnancy situation to care for, to help, to encourage, to point to Jesus, not to condone any sin, but to care for, to behave like Jesus behaves. Caring for women in crisis pregnancy situations requires a support network of not just a few hours, but for a lifetime. We've been so good, the church in the West, about pointing to the cost of the unborn. What about the cost of the mothers who went through this? Do they feel cared and supported for? Do they feel like they had only one option available to them? I want to speak to the men for a second. Fathers, fathers, 
men in this room, are you known in your home more with your frustration when the rules are broken or for your responsible responses of grace and forgiveness? Do you set impossible standards in your home? Or are you the first in line to say, I need Jesus, look at my life. I am broken, I am weak. Is your home a safe place to be broken in? Is your home a place where your daughters can come to you and tell you the things that they have done and the forgiveness they need? Or is the standard too high? We can't cross dad, we can't mess with this. Fathers, men, will you show compassion in this? Are you brave enough to step into your wife, your girlfriend, your mother's story of abortion? To walk into the pain, to listen and not judge, to weep with her over her loss, to feel, to walk with her, to point her to Jesus. Just as men care for little ones, men care for the vulnerable. They care for the broken. That's what a man does. He protects, he shelters, he helps the hurting. That's what we do. Oh, church, that we would be a community like nothing else. That this would be a place, not just on this issue, but on all issues of people feeling that they can come to this place in their brokenness, in their hurt, in their lostness, and they would hear from us truth. Yes, not condoning the sin. They would hear truth, but they would hear a truth that points to the Lord Jesus Christ. They would hear a truth the way that Jesus would say it, with the same kind of love and grace and mercy. If Jesus loves like this, this is how we should as well. That God would lead us away from places of condemnation to places of grace. Here's how we're going to close our time together. If it is true that the numbers are as high as they actually are said to be, I don't think there's any reason why we shouldn't believe that that it could mean quite possibly that there's a lot of hurt within our church. So what we've done is we have created a group for women who can walk together. We're hoping that it can be helpful for you. Maybe you have a wound because of an abortion that you made. Or maybe you want to come alongside women who have had abortions. You want to support them. We've created this group. I'll put the slide up behind me. Um, you can find out more information. It's going to be on the front page of our website even today. Did I say that this is a group only for women? I'd say it one more time. It's a group only for women, okay? Uh, if you have any questions about that, please feel free to email us at grace at hopeoakville.ca. If you're a part of this church and this is your story, then this group may be just the thing for you. What I'm going to do is I'm going to leave this email up behind uh, so if you want to, you can pop up. It's pretty easy to remember, but if you want to uh, reach out, you can do that. I'll leave it up behind me while I pray. And uh, I want to take the time now to just seek the Lord and ask for his grace in this very heavy, difficult topic. Let's pray to the Lord now. Would you bow with me, church?
Lord, I pray that you would please give grace today in the hearts. I want to pray specifically for the women in this church. That you would be speaking so loudly to them where this preacher fails. Lord, would they hear your voice of grace and mercy today? Not the voice of condemnation that drips from the tongue of the Pharisee, but the voice of love that drips from the mouth of the Savior. We thank you, Lord, today for the hope that is found in you, Lord Jesus, the forgiveness of sin that can be found in you, Lord Jesus. At the same time, we face the reality of an awful atrocity happening around the world, Lord, and I believe that you will call men and women from this church to do even more, some, than they're already doing. How could you use us, Lord? If human life is this precious to you, and it is, this must grieve your heart so much. Please, Lord, if there's something we can do, in the very least, to be fervent in prayer to stop. But also, God, I pray that you would make us a community, a church, Lord, that receives, that accepts, that welcomes, that loves. That wields truth, not like a sledgehammer across the heads of hurting people, but in grace connects them to the hand of the Lord Jesus who would save. Please, God, so much hurt so much pain. We need your comfort here today in this place. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.